Howdy fellow gamers and welcome to the 5 Buy, your bi-weekly source for rapid fire board game reviews. In this week's episode, Ruth tries her luck with the Herb Witches expansion to the Quacks of Quedlinburg, Meeple Lady debuts her fashions in Pret-a-Porter, Ruel goes into battle in Heroes of Land, Air, and Sea, Mason visits the Derby with Horse Race, and I drop some colored shapes with Drop It. Here's Ruth. Hello, 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, looking forward to a new year of excellent gaming. But before I look too much at 2020's opportunities, I want to look back for a few minutes. Roughly a year ago, I talked about The Quacks of Quedlinburg on episode 52, the push-your-luck bag-building game that was one of my 2018 favorites. Well, in 2019, North Star Games released an expansion for the game, The Herb Witches. While designed to all work together, this addition to Quacks can essentially be broken down into six modules that will augment your potion brewing in a variety of ways without shifting the feel or complexity of the game so much that it becomes something altogether different. Firstly, there are some must-include additions in this box. Six value pumpkins and overflow bowls. The former simply provides much more valuable pumpkin tokens and a new spellbook to replace the original. Buying a larger pumpkin is a very expensive proposition at a cost of 22, but it provides for a ton of movement on the cauldron track, and since the rules of the game aren't changed in any fashion by adding them, I see no reason not to include both pumpkin values in every game from now on. The overflow bowl do change the rolls a bit more, but only when someone's having an extremely good draw. You see, these are small boards that sit by the end of each player's cauldron track and give a place to drop tokens if you fully made it to the spoon. Tokens going into the bowl provide the chance to earn extra points, but don't trigger any of their special actions. Unfortunately, the white tokens can still bust you. The overflow boards let you keep going without being forced to stop just because you reach the end. But since getting to the end of the cauldron track doesn't necessarily happen all that often. It's not a game-breaking addition. The third addition in the Herb Witches expansion is simply components for a fifth player. Adding another player to the table doesn't really increase playtime at all, so I've had no issues adding that extra brewer to the table. And well, since the fifth player color happens to be black, my player color of choice, these pieces are always included when I set up a game of quacks. The next part of the Herb Witches expansion is an alternative rather than an addition to the base game. You see, in the box you get two more sets of recipes, increasing the variability of token actions. I've only played with the fifth set of abilities so far. This set seemed designed to create a ruby-heavy game, perfect for when we're using the advanced side of the board, where your ruby-driven droplet movement can be used to add more chips to your bag. This is one of the things I've loved with the base game too, trying different sets of token abilities and seeing what the best option for this is versus the base set. And having more options during setup is something that I do tend to appreciate. The last two things added are a new ingredient, local weed, and then the titular herb witches themselves. And these are the slightly more interesting parts. I usually add both of these into my games since putting all of the expansion in really doesn't add a ton of rolls overhead. But if I'm playing with less experienced or simply with more tired and worn out gamers on a work night, sometimes I'll pull these two pieces back out again. Local Weed comes with two options for its ability, and each of them are very situational, as the tokens either copy your previously pulled colored token or are affected by the number of rat tails you received in the round. This makes local weed an unpredictable ingredient to play with, but one that can be incredibly satisfying when it works well. 
And then the herb witches. Well, I love the herb witches. There are three different witches in the game, and they're illustrated by Dennis Lahousen in the same beautiful style as his work on the original Quacks of Quedlinburg. Each has four boards, one of which is randomly chosen during setup, and then each player gets a set of three witch pennies in gold, silver, and copper. Players can simply hold onto these coins as a coin held to the end of the game is worth two points. But they can also spend the coins by putting them on the corresponding witch. In exchange for paying the witch, she'll let them break the rules in some way. These one-time-per-game abilities include things like doubling the amount you have to spend during a buy phase, increasing your points during scoring based on the chips you didn't pull, and a whole lot of other really fun options. Having the coins makes it really easy to track what abilities you're still able to use, and most of them aren't too tricky to understand, so I recommend including the witches in almost every situation. You can also Always just pick and choose which witch boards you grab instead of doing it at random if you want to make sure things stay a little simpler for new players. Overall, the Herb Witches expansion for Quacks is my favorite type of board game expansion. It adds more of the same, along with a few interesting tweaks that have been put together in such a way that you can pick and choose what to include from play to play. Being able to add all or just some of the options from the expansion lets you tailor the game to suit your group or suit your mood. The fifth player set, the six value pumpkins, and the overflow pots especially fill gaps that seem to show up in the original roll set, giving an overall more satisfying game experience. And everything else is just a lot of fun. If you already own and love quacks, the herb witches are definitely worth your consideration. So check them out, and if you do try the expansion, let me know your favorite favorite of the new editions. Until next time, you can find me on Twitter at Roof, that's an R, four O's, and an F. In one of the more unique themes in board games, Pret-a-Porter is an economic strategy game set in the world of high fashion. But don't let the theme or the look of the game fool you. This game is ruthless, competitive, and a great worker placement. It's right up my alley. Now let's all take a little turn on this catwalk. Pret-a-Porter was originally designed by Ignacy Trevichek in 2010 by Portal Games, and this third edition that came out in 2019 has artwork by Quanchai Maria, Maurice Gonzel, and Marcias Janik. The artwork is colorful, sleek, and modern, and even includes people of all colors, which is pretty fantastic. And the victory point border around the board looks like a measuring tape. It's a perfect touch. Pret-a-Porter is your standard worker placement game. Everybody sends their three action pawns one at a time to various locations on the board, and when that's done, all the locations are resolved in order from top to bottom on the game board. Each location, however, has limited spots for action pawns, so you're forced to make difficult decisions about taking a chance that that location will still be available when it gets back to your turn. In Pret-a-Porter, which means ready to wear, gamers play as fashion companies working to lead their company to gain both money and prestige. These companies must make decisions about expanding their companies by building factories, hiring employees, collecting designs, and securing fabric for those designs in order to showcase them at the next exhibition. Exhibit and sell great design collections, and you'll be raking in the dough, just in time to get ready for the next upcoming exhibition. But if you expand your company too quickly, you'll be forced to take out loans when you can't pay for your overhead costs. There are nine locations on the board that players can place their action pawns in. You can get a loan 
You can gain a contract, which will give you bonus abilities that only last a few rounds. You can also gain buildings and employees, which improve your company output, but they also cost money to build or acquire and increase your overhead costs. You can also place your pawn to add cards to your collection. Here you want to acquire cards that match collections in your hand so that you can sell more clothes during a show. Exhibits only allow you to showcase one type of collection each time. Lastly, you can purchase materials based on what the design cards require. The local and import warehouses have different costs for all the different color materials, and they all give a buyer a fixed amount of quality, which will come into play during exhibition. The last space that you can place your pawn is on the last minute preparation spot, which gives you either two quality, one public relations, one trend, or $5 in cash. Quality, public relations, trend, and the number of cards in your design collection all come into play during exhibitions. The game has four exhibition rounds. The first one has one show, and each exhibition round adds another show to it. During these shows is when prestige ribbons are doled out based on different categories. In case you haven't figured it out, those categories are quality, public relations, trend, and the number of cards in your collection. During the show phase, players showcase one type of finished collection from their hands, in which they've acquired all the materials printed on those cards. Each show is only looking for two types of categories, and prestige ribbons will only go to the first and second place victors of each category, meaning the player who has amassed the most of that specific category for the exhibition. After prestige ribbons have been handed out, players then sell their collections. They receive the cash printed on their collection cards that they exhibited. They also multiply the amount of prestige tokens they've just received by the number of cards in their collection they presented. The players then discard all their quality, public relation, and trend tokens and start getting ready for their next exhibition. They keep their prestige points because later they can exchange prestige for VPs right before the next show. The fashion show schedule is revealed at the beginning of the game, so information on what each show is looking for is public knowledge, and you can plan your collections for the entire game. Sometimes it's more advantageous to cut bait on a particular category if you can score more on another one down the line. It is, however, very important to sell something at each show, as you'll need the money to set you up on future rounds. Money is very tight. You don't want to get bogged down in loans, and you really don't want to get bogged down in bad loans, which have a much higher interest. The final exhibition has four shows, and in each show, each category is only scored once. And then the final scoring is a combined score of the player's cash and VPs, and the one with the most is the winner. What I love about Pret-a-Porter is that you hit the ground running from the start of the game as there are only two action rounds for you to gather resources before the next exhibition, and this fast-paced cycle repeats itself for the entire game. Fashion waits for no one, people. Time to get cracking on new designs. Nobody wants last season's Yeezys. And that's Pret-a-Porter. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! The appearance of a game can do a lot to influence our expectations of what the play experience will be like. Art styles, fonts, component types, and box covers can all give clues as to what's inside and how that game compares to others. How often does this hold up in actual gameplay? 
I'm going back in time to Gen Con 2018 when a game called Drop It unexpectedly appeared at my friend's table. Drop It is a game with simple plastic shapes and primary colors. The main playing space is a hollow, windowpane-looking component into which you drop pieces as you play so that it creates a mosaic of colored shapes. In a four-player game, each person gets all the pieces of their color. On your turn, you select one of your pieces and drop it in. That piece scores you points according to how high it is when it lands and what it's touching. The goal of the game is to score the most points, and you simply take turns dropping pieces until all pieces have been dropped. There are several factors that influence which shape you decide to drop and where you try to drop it. If your piece is touching another piece of the same color or shape, that's automatically worth zero points. The borders of the board are marked with either colors or shapes, so you can't touch the same color or shape there either. So you're looking for good spots to aim for that won't invalidate your score. There are some height tiers that are marked on the board, so the higher your piece is, the more points you'll score. Finally, there are some circles that you can aim for that are worth a certain number of points if you can get your piece to touch them. In order to evaluate these different considerations, you do have to give it some thought. Sometimes other pieces will shift when your piece hits them, so you're also trying to predict that as you look for a good spot. If you want to take it to another level, you can try to create board states that will be difficult for other players. The result of all of this is a game that is much more fun than it looks. I first encountered this game at Gen Con, where everyone's expectations for art and minis and gameplay are pretty high. At first glance, and especially in that kind of high-powered environment, Drop It looked more like a toy than a game to a lot of us. But you're there to try stuff, so we tried it and it was a huge hit. It came out many times during the con and always stayed out for multiple games. It was so popular that one of our friendly local game stores sold out of it shortly after the con, so I was unable to feed my addiction afterward for quite some time. Drop It is a great 20 to 30 minute game to play with folks of just about any age and level of gaming experience. It's perfect for casual gamers who don't want to learn a lot of rules or engage in a lot of long-term strategy, but they do want to spend time with you and experience your hobby. Or to put it another way, Drop It feels more like doing than thinking, which can be a lot more engaging for some folks. Drop It has no text, so as long as you can teach the rules, you would be able to play without language barriers. It's not fancy and doesn't have any art, but it is kind of eye-catching on the table. People would notice if you played it out in public somewhere. Similar to other dexterity games like Clask and Flick 'em Up, Drop It is not going to be the most portable thing in your collection, but what it does, it does well. In terms of accessibility, Drop It does rely on primary colors to distinguish playing pieces so it may not work for players with red-green color blindness. I think a version with patterns or symbols in addition to color would be great, like you see in Coloretto, for example. Drop It is best with four players because each player gets their own set of pieces in their own color. If you have three players, you simply split up the pieces of the extra color, and two players play with two colors each. I think the play experience benefits from having a larger group as a fun sort of beer and pretzels type game. Each turn presents a different decision and a new suspenseful event to react to as someone drops their piece, since the board develops as you play. It's easy to think you're being clever and feel like you're in control by scouting out the perfect vision for your move and then have the pieces shift in a way that takes away your points or sets up the next person for something even better. Drop It is high on my list of underrated games from the past five years or so. 
It is published by Cosmos and designed by Bernhard Lach and Uwe Rapp. There is no credited artist, although the game does come with a scoreboard that involves some graphic design. If you're in need of something with some novelty and kinesthetic appeal that is playable with a wide range of ages, check out Drop It. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at D6CMarie. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Ogmore, a fertile land that once provided for all. The elves, orcs, humans, and dwarves that had coexisted became enemies during the centuries-long desolation. And when the Plague of Baroness ended, Ogmore did not return to its peaceful state. Rather, an ongoing battle for supremacy was born. Friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's take a look at Heroes of Land, Air, and Sea, a game by designer Scott Alms, with art by Chad Hoverter, Adam P. MacGyver, Ian Rosenthaler, and Benjamin Schulman, and published by Gameland Games in 2018. In this 4X game, you attempt to improve your army's skills and increase its numbers in your quest to become ruler of Ogmore. You begin with one warrior and two serfs, along with your faction's board. You'll place your capital city on the game board, which depicts four continents separated by oceans. The bulk of the game happens during the action selection phase. Players perform one action on their turn, and others may follow that action by paying the cost. The active player may perform capital actions, recruiting troops, constructing buildings, learning spells, or gaining resources. Other players may follow a capital action by placing one of the serfs on their board. The active player may also do command actions, marching, sailing, flying troops, or casting spells. Command actions cannot be followed by other players, but the active player may muster a second command action by placing one of their serfs on their player board. When armies eventually collide, combat is done via player's tactic cards. One army will win and stay in the region, while the other will leave and possibly lose units. The game ends when one of the 4x objectives is achieved. One player has all of their serfs and warriors in play, has built all three of their towers, has their capital city destroyed, or if all land exploration tokens have been revealed. Points are awarded based on recruited units and vessels, constructed buildings and towers, spells, bonuses from exploration tokens, and for each region you control. The most points wins and is crowned the new ruler of Ogmore. Gameland Games and designer Scott Alms have carved out their own impressive collection of titles in the Tiny Epics series of games. While small in physical size, each of the Tiny Epics features themes and mechanisms found in bigger and more expensive titles. Heroes of Land, Air, and Sea is their chance to think outside the small box and offer fans a bigger and more immersive experience. It's a 4X game that isn't shy in scope and table presence. No expense was spared in creating this mammoth-sized game. It's got a ton of minis in it, the player boards are solid, and the game board is ginormous. When I first saw the box, I wondered if a publisher known for its tiny games could provide a worthwhile, fully-sized game that retails at just over $100. Could this first big offering from Gameland Games live up to its promise? In a word, yes. It's a 4X game that plays quickly and offers plenty of replayability thanks to its different races, both in the base game and the expansions. Each one features different abilities and powers, giving them a distinctive feel. The gameplay is smooth thanks to the simple one-action-per-turn structure. Like Tiny Epic Galaxies, the follow mechanism in Heroes of Land, Air, and Sea keeps all players engaged and offers an interesting decision during every round. It can be helpful to follow an opponent's action, but it costs you a surf to do so. Will you make that sacrifice and risk having an opponent muscle into one of your territories? If you're not into direct conflict, then this game won't be for you. You're not rewarded for turtling in the corner of the map. 
You need to march your forces so you can explore new lands and gather resources to construct buildings and vessels and grow your forces. When you enter an opponent's territory, combat is done via a deck of seven tactic cards. It's a streamlined system that's easy to learn and neatly implemented. Certain cards have bonuses or penalties against other cards, but each card costs resources to play. Knowing how many resources your opponent has can help you deduce the cards that they're able to play against you. As you gain more territories, you'll be able to mine them for their resources, which allows you to upgrade your forces. Gaining your faction's heroes will give you their abilities and give you an edge during battle. It's a lot of fun exploring the factions in the game. They're all different from each other and offer a unique flavor to their play, especially those from the expansions. For example, the Undead faction from the Order and Chaos expansion has an additional card where you keep track of the souls you've taken. The Pestilence expansion adds the Bird Folk and the Merfolk factions, with an additional board on plastic stilts for the Bird Folk's floating continent and a plastic overlay for the Merfolk's sunken continent. With these expansions, up to seven players can play, but I don't see the experience changing much from the four player game. It just seems like it'd only result in more downtime. I've enjoyed all of my plays of Heroes of Land, Air, and Sea, and recommend it as an intro to 4X gaming. It's a smooth-running fantasy game that looks absolutely gorgeous on the table. In fact, I sometimes find myself not playing optimally, since I'm always trying to get my cool-looking sea and air vessels onto the board. Win or lose, the experience is always epic, and definitely not tiny. Thanks to Gamelin Games for providing a review copy of Heroes of Land, Air, and Sea and Expansions. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about horse race. I'm not a big gambler, but I've been part of a family of gamblers for the last 20 years. And while losing money at a casino doesn't interest me, the mechanics of gambling games always do. Over the holidays this year, I was looking for a horse racing game that everyone could play together. Now, I own a number of 70s horse race games, but many of them are more complicated than I thought anyone in the family would be interested in trying to learn. There's a traditional wooden game I'd been interested in from about 100 years ago, playable with a deck of cards called the Horse Race Game, and also marketed under a bunch of different trade names over the years. I was thinking about trying to make a print-and-play version of that when I stumbled across this other fantastic horse racing game playable with just a deck of cards and poker chips. Even in trying to dig fairly deeply, I haven't been able to find anything beyond it being called Horse Race and being a somewhat traditional gambling game. For a lot of games of chance and betting, my question is always, "Mm, is this really a game, and are there choices to be made that are meaningful to the players? Now, of course, in something like poker or blackjack, there are plenty of decisions to be made, but in Kino or Roulette, the decision that you're making almost never affects the outcome of whether or not you win. Now, I have no interest in getting into the nuts and bolts of casino gambling with anyone, please do not at me. But suffice to say that whether or not you bet on the number 24 or 25 at the roulette table has neither bearing on the outcome nor is it based on anything other than superstition or at best some kind of gut instinct, which is of course directly tied to some superstition. Horse race is somewhere in between poker and roulette in terms of skill and game. The choices that you're making in horse race are how much to bet and what to bet it on. Though it's played with a deck of cards, you yourself don't ever touch these cards, only the dealer does. So how is this a game? Well, here's how it works. The dealer removes the ace of each suit and places them in a vertical line on the table in front of the players. They then shuffle the deck and deal out seven cards in a horizontal line above the aces. The aces are the horses, and the line of cards above them is the track. Based on how many cards of each suit are visible on the track, the dealer calls out the odds for each horse. If there are zero cards of a suit in the line, odds on that horse are even. One card is 2 to 1, two cards is 3 to 1, three cards is 5 to 1, 
and if there are four cards of a suit laid out on the track line, odds are 10 to 1 that horse will win. Now, because I'm not a statistician, I can't say whether or not these are mathematically accurate or whatever, but having played several times with them, they, at least in practice, seem to work just fine. The dealer now asks players to place their bets, and depending on whether or not you're really playing for money, which we will get into later, the dealer may want to set a max bet to prevent a player from breaking the bank and ruining everyone's fun. If you're just playing for points and glory, I see no reason not to let players bet whatever stupid amount of money they want. If they want to go bankrupt and lose, I guess that's their business. When I've played this with kids, I usually limit players to a single bet per round, because doing the math on two or more bets seems to be somewhat overwhelming for kids under 12. Just them doing the math on, if I bet X and the odds are Y, I win Z, is plenty of work without them attempting to hedge and cover with multiple bets. If you're playing with mostly adults, I would highly encourage multiple bets because it makes the game far more interesting. Because this is essentially a casino-style game you're playing at home, you'll need a way to keep track of those multiple bets. If you're playing with chips, you'll find a link to printable betting mats that I made in the show notes for this episode. You'll need to print just one of these for each player and then cut them out. They're basically just four boxes with a card suit symbol in each where players can place their chips before the race starts. If you're more inclined to play on paper, you'll also find a link to a tally sheet I made where you can record players' bets with a pencil. I put five races on a single sheet, but could only fit betting columns for six players. If you're going to play with a lot of people, you should definitely just use chips. I think it's more fun anyway. So now that we've called the odds and everyone has placed their bets, it is time to run the race already. The dealer calls no more bets and starts turning over cards from the deck and placing them next to their corresponding suited aces. This is each horse running its race. When one horse crosses the finish line with an eighth card in their row, not including the ace, you're looking for one card past the seven cards of the track. That horse, and only that horse, wins. Losing bets get collected, winning bets are paid out. From my experience, I think it's best to limit the number of races to five so the game doesn't wear out its welcome. If you wanted to get more complex, you could certainly write out a parlay wager system with win, place, and show odds, but you're on your own for that one. You can find what I suppose passes for some official rules over at Pagget.com, one of my favorite websites, as well as a couple of variants that I haven't tried. If you really wanted to get into the spirit of horse race, buy a deck of cards with horses on them. You need to be careful if you're playing for money that you don't allow players to bet to break the bank. More players is better too, 6 is probably about perfect, though there's no reason you couldn't play with 12 or more. However, it's always possible that if everyone bet big on a long shot that won, the pot wouldn't cover the odds. What to do in that situation? Well, it's not how real gambling works, so at home I'd probably just split the pot between the winners and tell them tough luck on the rest. Since there's no house to play against, there's not really anyone to win money from except the other losing bets. At the end of your game, you may find money left over in the pot after everyone is cashed in. In that case, either split what's left evenly between the players, or if you're nice, give it to the person who hosted your game night to pay for the pizza. I had a great time playing horse race over Christmas with both little kids and seasoned casino gamblers at the same table, and I think your family and friends will love it as well. So, who should play horse race? People who like horse racing. People who want an interactive party game for up to 12 people. People who want to teach their kids about odds and probability and gambling. And people who want to try to win money from their friends and relatives. I give Horse Race 2 to 1 that you'll enjoy it as a light party game, especially if everyone can bet a little money as a treat. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost. Thanks for listening to The 5 by Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or check out our website, 5 if you like what you hear on the 5 by and want to support our work, visit patreon.com slash 5 by games. Thank you. 
Five By is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.